Welcome to another episode of The Back Row Theologians, a podcast where two guys with a particular set of skills talk about theology or whatever else comes to mind. And now here are your hosts, Andrew and Ian. Well, howdy. Welcome to another episode of The Back Row Theologians, a conversation about theology, the church, and the Christian life with a little nonsense in the between. I'm your host, Yates. And this is Ian. And we're continuing our conversation about church practice today, and um, one of the practices we'll be hitting today is about baptism. You have not been baptized. I am concerned about your salvation stuff. A little bit worried about your salvation stuff. (laughs) I I love... So, okay, I used to have a a great fondness for uh, for Nacho Libre. Really? You used to? Well, okay, so here's here's my... So, uh, part of... Okay. I watched it next to somebody who thought it was hysterical, and it's the type of movie that, like, if you're with people who think it's funny, it's awesome. But if you're with people who don't think it's funny, it's not really that much fun. That's true so part of it, movie. It's true, <laughs> but, like, I think I just had so much fun watching it the first time. It kind of carried me through my next couple watchings. I watched it again this summer, and I realized, eh, yeah. I'm okay if I don't, uh, if I just quote it from now on. Oh, I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. Well, but it's a uh, the, I, I the, f- <laughs> the funniest part of the movie, by the way, with most people is the sermon that that the uh, the old uh, priest is preaching in sermon near the beginning is so. I don't funny. think I remember that at all. Well, he's preaching. He's preaching in Spanish. So if you don't know Spanish, but he's like sitting oh, there okay. like I don't remember exactly, but it's like, and the joy of the Lord will give you all. You know, it's like it's like he's in this monotone talking about the joy of Jesus, and it's pretty funny. Anyways. <laughs> Sounds awesome. Uh, in the center of every man is his nucleus. Well, we're uh, so talking about uh, baptism today. Um, there are, there is so much, and this may be shocking. Uh, both Ian and I, well, two shocking elements. I think both Ian and I, uh, you and I, land in similar places, and there was much rejoicing. But then the second thing is we are in the minority position worldwide. <laughs> That is, uh, so I've actually been doing some research recently about Good like what, pers- about Good what's, well, I've been doing so much research. Um, this, the, the end of March, so I tell every grad student never make any significant life decisions in March. March mm. is just a terrible month. Mm. If you're a grad student, it was the first, uh, it is now spring though. Which oh, is good nice. for you. You, you um, can anyways. see it through the library windows. <laughs> oh, true. look out there. The world, <laughs> it's warm again. Uh, Yates was like, asked me about doing, about doing something tomorrow. I was like, I was going to plan to go to the library. He's like, oh, what time? I was like, well, from the moment it opens to the moment it closes, I was planning on being in the library tomorrow. Well, I mean all day. I mean all day. There's a lecture around 1030 I'd like to make at night. Oh, okay. All right. Well, so the, I've been doing some research recently about uh, different, um, I'm planning on, I think I mentioned this, doing some, uh, some Facebook lives about the different kind of branches of Christianity and oh, just yeah. introducing that. Uh, and I did some breakdown to realize that uh, what what percentage of Christian of Christians out there, Andrew, do you think go to churches that are non liturgical? And so by non liturgical, I mean what? every is that you know every week the worship team or whatever you want to call it sits down and says, "What are we going to pray this week? You know, oh, what are we yeah. going to pray, preach, read?" Like they that they put together, they don't have like a set. Yeah, wording or anything. What what percentage of Christians do you think are in a, are in traditions that are non liturgical? So, 
I would say, so like being in a quote non-liturgical, and as you, I say, I would say that every church has its own liturgy. Like we have our rhythms, we have our culture, but. That is absolutely true. Yes. So, but, but saying um, the, like, so say that whoever's leading the prayers gets to pray whatever he or she wants. Um, Whoever's picking the songs, whoever's picking the readings, all these different things. I would you say have a liturgy. You just came up with the liturgy, you know, this on Tuesday, yeah, <laughs> right. this last week or this month ago. Um, yeah, I would say that um, it is really hard <laughs> to do that to come up consistently week in and week out. If you have a three year rhythm or a two year rhythm or an annual rhythm, we're just doing it again, and you can focus on the between the week, but a lot of energy goes to the weekend. So I would say it's a really small percentage. I would say. Worldwide, uh, mm. Christians that are doing that, uh, oh man, five percent, ten percent. Well, it is more than so. It's about eighteen percent is the best thing. Mm. So you're talking fifteen to twenty percent. Uh, but it is interesting. I think if you grew up in uh, kind of ev- low evangelical churches, you know, you grew up singing, uh, "He came from heaven to earth," and you all know, the good ones, Chris Tomlin. Uh, you may not realize that like your church experience is the vast, vast minority uh, of people. And I think that's, that's, you know, it's sometimes it's, there's, it's nothing wrong with being the minority, but if you're in the minority, sometimes it's good to know that. Um, and so then of those 20, you know, 20%, about half would kind of hold the view of baptism that we were going to talk about. So it, mm. we are a little bit in the minority globally, but we'll talk some of the reasons about that. Yeah, I'm super pumped. Um, well, before we do jump in, I've got a couple things. Um, uh, I mean, speaking of liturgy, so a couple, I mean, months ago, a couple episodes ago, we talked about how I went to um, this passion conference and heard some, I mean, awesome worship. But I realized that my church really should be doing a better job of, con- like, we have the potential to contribute to that non-liturgical worship at a, at a worldwide, you know, okay, 10%, 20% scale. But, um they kind of fell on me and I felt like, well, what am I doing? I'm like, Oh my goodness, I got to do something. So I, I've written, I've written a couple poems and I, I'm pretty proud of them, but oh, yeah? I realized, so I, I was sharing them with some, some people who are, you know, actually published musicians that go to my church and I, they were like, why don't you read it for me? And I'm like, Oh my gosh, great Scott. I don't, I don't have any m- music at all to this. And mm. it was really weird. You've heard of like music without words. Well, these are words without music because I mean, I'm studying the Psalms all the time, mm-hmm. but I don't have any melody at all in my head. I just study the the like the the symbolism, study the the repetition. I'm not um, I'm not putting any melody at all. So like, I could do pauses, but see, this is this is when you need. Weird. This is why we need chants uh, <laughs> and, and tones, right? Because then all you have to do so. You know, the way that, you know, the way like you pray in a church that prays with tones, right? You just have the cadence and then you can pray for wherever you want. You know, it's like, oh, Lord, we pray for Andrew's blue sweater. <laughs> we pray that it would not fray. We pray that as he takes it off, he would hang it up correctly. Like you just, you know, like you just put up whatever, whatever words you want. And so uh, you just need to learn some good tones, oh, man. man. So you can just plug no, your words. That into would anything. freak too many people out. That would just freak that people would not handle it. I mean, if I if Louis Giglio at the next passion passion twenty twenty said we're gonna chant this prayer together, people I, would 
would someday I'm going to go me. back to the church I, I grew up in. I'm going to convince them to let me preach, and I'm going to sing the first part of the sermon just just to see. You're going to lull happens. people to sleep. Um, you're going to people are not going to handle ah, it. It's awesome. Um, well, anyway, so I, I'm I'm I've it was really cool. I had a guy walk up to me. I was well, actually, I happened to sit next to him for his first um, uh, staff meeting. We've got about 150 people on staff, 180 people on staff. And so I just happened to sit next to this guy and it turns out that he's like, man, I feel really convicted to, to write and or to compose, um, songs that will be, uh, evangelical and will help challenge people's worldviews, but I just don't have any words. (laughs) And I'm like, first off, that's a weird thing to tell somebody. Second off, Turns out I was looking for you. <laughs> if someone could just hand me words, that would be awesome. I was like, well, here's some words right here. Uh, see what you can do with these. And so he's like, I just I just get, sit down to a piano and start, things, tones start coming out. And I'm like, okay, this is goofy. But so there's there's some some cool stuff like that's on the on the cuff. That's really happening. cool. But, um, but yeah, it was kind of a bizarre thing. I've been like, I've been studying for too long. I need to like listen for a little longer. Yeah, that's cool. But let's see. So uh, speaking of weird though, I do want to throw something at you. Have you heard of um oh what's it called um Mandelaism? Mandela no, like the Mandela, Nelson Man- th- yeah the Mandela effect that's what it's called like Nelson Mandela yeah so there's these shared memories um that that people have that are not true or not okay. reality so sure. like um, I did a lot of, I actually did a lot of work in some of that um around the gospels uh, like five or six years ago. Anyway, oh, yeah, go like, ahead. Can people remember this? Or is you know, it possible share... for them to remember yeah. it? Yeah. Well, so there's a thing called the Mandela effect, and you can look it up. Um, but basically, the, the the premise is people remember Nelson Mandela dying in the 80s, but that's impossible because he was elected president in like 94. Yeah. And so everyone's like, "Well, I thought he died." And like, "Oh, maybe he must not have died." And they're like, "What? You thought he died too?" But there's also stuff like Bernstein bears. Um, is the Bernstein Bears. It's a different pronunciation. I was like, what? I thought it was the Bernstein. And so there's all these things that people remember that aren't real. And it's a shared memory, and it's called the Mandela Effect. But uh, I talked to a gentleman for about an hour yesterday. Um, it was the most... Well, did you? Or did you just remember that you talked <laughs> As far as I can remember. But it's... Uh, well, as far as I can remember, this actually happened. But uh, basically... Um, he is has this gentleman has remembered um verses that are no longer in the King James Bible and he says it's because CERN in their hydro uh their uh um their particle collider has corrupted a parallel universe that has merged with our universe and this is all this has been um created and guided by supernatural forces to corrupt the King James Bible so that um, the the church would lose her hope, and I need to invest. I need to uh, um, have ears to understand, kind of thing. And I'm like, oh, okay, man. C- couple of questions. So first, oh, <laughs> so first of all, you you talked to this person, oh, and yeah. they was it on Reddit or 4chan or was no, it like in was, the flesh? Like this is an actual person. Yeah, this is a person that's alive, lives in my town. So let me let me just make sure I understand this correctly. They think that that I alternate reality has merged with our reality and has corrupted the original king james well that's right did it corrupt 
like the artifacts and it like corrupt the you know the ancient documents True, oh, yeah. just oh, the yeah. king james okay. it's the the so, universes have collided together so like are all bibles like was was the old church slavonic you know was it work messed with no, or was just, it just the king just james? the king james well the only one that really matters <laughs> let's be honest here and so like it, it's just a really weird and then uh the best source of information on this according to this gentleman is a specific youtube channel which is the worst thing to say to me if you want to convince me that something is real. Um, and so I'm, I'm probably going to meet with this guy again because he's super intelligent, but I think a lot of energy has gone into this. I mean, he he can quote verses left and right. It's amazing. And he remembers stuff, and he's super evangelistic. But I think in a lot of ways it's like, hey, we Most found better... Most evangelists are crazy. Yeah, we, we found better manuscripts, and... We don't we don't put new wine in old wine bottles. We put it in old wineskins now. That's okay. That's okay. Well, anyway. well there you have it. Welcome anyway, to welcome to the church. That's my goofy pastoral care thing of the week. Well, well, hey, so I've got a couple of things that I saw. I've been my brain has just been on rapid fire, just working through some stuff the last couple of so weeks. So how about I do some rapid fires of things I've been thinking about. But yeah, hit, can, hit me in. I'm gonna. Can, uh, so here's some here's some introductions and things I've been thinking about. I'll, I'll tell you if they're boring. They're, I'll I'll give right. them a interested. How about this? I'll give you a one to ten. One is humans need to know about this at every corner of the earth and every tribe, tongue, and nation. Ten is uh, you have climbed the peak of the ivory tower and been <laughs> placed your pinnacle at the top. So just get, bring it though. Bring the heat. All I'm right. not afraid. All right, here we go. Now I'm afraid. Uh, so I read a lecture uh, that. Tolkien gave as a to the philology a philology society called English and Welsh. So if you Google Tolkien English and Welsh, you can you too can read this philology lecture. Hmm. But as he, he made a really interesting comment that he kind of dismissed the idea of race and he said basically what race isn't really a thing. Really, what there are is cult. There's language. Lang, there's there are languages and languages make cultures. Hmm. Um, I said so that's really interesting. I think it actually. Uh, there's a couple interesting implications for that idea for the church. One is that one of the big things that people ask the question all the time is why do we have so many denominations? And really, if you look at the denomination, like the, the explosion of denominations at the Reformation, it's coming at the same time that you have an explosion of lingua francas across Europe. Yeah. That the, the, you know, that there, the, the there was a breakdown as far as people no longer were using Latin for all of the uh, academic language. or And so all of a sudden, as soon as you went into vernacular, people, you know, so now you have Swedes and you have Germans and they're both Lutherans, but they're, you know, two different forms of Lutheran because they're doing the, they're talking in different languages. Well, then all mm-hmm. of a sudden those Swedes and those Germans moved to the U.S. And now you have Swedes and you have Germans yeah. and you have U.S. Swedes and you have U.S. Germans. And all of a sudden you have four denominations. So it is really interesting just to kind of look about how hmm. worshiping communities a lot of times are really just their cultures and their cultures a lot of times around language groups. Uh, and I think that that's, uh, it's, it's an interesting to look how languages have formed the worship, the way in which we worship, which has worked its way into a lot of the denominational structures which is one of the reasons why they don't feel as important anymore as we've kind of gone back to more of a common language 
Um, which it's, so I think it's interesting. The other thing that, that the second part of that, that is that, interesting. That is interesting. I'll say that's, oh, that's interesting. Well, you win. I well, thank you. Do you think, so like the, the slaying of America being a melting pot, um, do you think that's, is that just because everyone has a common, like, it seems like the religion showed up and splintered instead of showed up and merged. Right. Well, I mean, so my family was in Pennsylvania, middle Pennsylvania for like 200 years. And my grandfather's first language was still Pennsylvania Dutch. It wasn't that long ago that people still, their first language was still the language of wherever they immigrated from, even if they had yeah. been there for, because everyone in that, those communities spoke that language. So, hmm. um, the other part I think that's really interesting out of this is that, uh, if you look at the two traditions, either the Greek Orthodox or the, the Roman tradition that see a lot of, um, that a lot of parallels between the Jews and the church. I do think it's interesting that those are traditions that re- that study the Old and New Testament in the same language. So the Greeks used, um, they used the Greek Old Testament and for the the Latin church, they translated both in the Latin. They studied them both in Latin. So I do think it's interesting. So if you're reading the Old Testament in the same language you read the New Testament, and all of a sudden you see the word ecclesia show up in the Psalms because they translate, they translated the Hebrew word for assembly as ecclesia. And they're like, oh, look, there, there's church. It's There's the church in the Old Testament. Yeah. You're going to be more likely to see a lot more parallels between the worship in the Old and New Testament. Versus if you are in a tradition that studied one in Hebrew and one in Greek, like most Protestant traditions are, that sees a little bit more of a distinction between those, which will function into practice. I thought that was a really interesting, that's kind of thinking about how, how much our identities, you know, the fact like if you walked into my church service, you would probably feel a little bit uncomfortable because so much of church and church practice is just what we're used to. And those cultures of worship and how much they've been really just been shaped by languages and, and kind of if you have like church cultures around languages. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, even just with the Protestant um, culture, if you're studying the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament or the New Testament, and it's completely different language, you have to completely shift gears going from left to right or right to left. And it would be really hard to imagine these being having significant overlap you'd have to in i mean that 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 is fascinating that's super interesting yeah just just a real quick thought so yesterday i uh i went to three chapel services i went to united church which is it's a lot um, of chapel well so i went to united the united church of canada is a is mainline it's it was a merger of the uh, United Methodist and the mainline presbyterian mm-hmm. um i went there for a memorial service i went to the anglican chapel and then I went to the Linton um, Chapel for the Eastern Catholics, which used the same liturgy as the, uh, the the Eastern Orthodox. And it was just fascinating, again, just doing the, you know, three services in one day, all by different traditions. It is fascinating, yeah, just seeing how many different ways there are to, to do a worship service. And you're talking about mostly the same stuff. Right. Wow. Anyway, so, okay, so topic number two, epiclesis. I've been thinking recently about epiclesis. Uh, epiclesis, epiclesis is the word. Yeah, it's the word, it means calling down. And so it talks about in liturgy the moment when you call down the oh, Holy sure. Spirit. So in, in uh, some traditions that believe in a change in the elements, they call down the Holy Spirit. And that 
uh, that affects the change of nature. I have a question for you. I just need to put a pin right there. The the whole song, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood the space and fill the atmosphere. Is mm-hmm. that an epiclesis? Is that what's happening? I, you know, I've actually realized that oh we have – that that the low church has an epiclesis too oh, because we no. still feel like we have to invite – Where is it, that Holy Spirit? <laughs> what is I, it he doesn't doing bother me. There? Like why do we have to invite the Holy Spirit? Okay, Holy never Spirit, mind. you can just come whenever – to drop in anytime you want, Holy Spirit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to um, drop epiclesis. I'm going to drop that next time we're like, and let's enter into well, the epiclesis. You should write a song about the Holy Spirit calming and call it epiclesis. <sighs> Oh and then goodness. I'll make fun of you because you're using a Greek <laughs> word and you said you only use English words. Not Anyways, in this house. Anyway. Uh, so they also, they believe in epiclesis. A lot of traditions on like uh, holy oil when you anoint um, or on the water of baptism. So this just got me thinking about um, can the Holy Spirit, does it come on an inanimate objects? Because the spirit is pneuma, bread, and it's typically connected with like a giving of God consciousness to an animate object. So I was doing, I was actually just looking through the Old Testament this afternoon, just trying to see, like, is there any basis for feeling that the Holy Spirit comes on inanimate objects? I did just, I came across a really fascinating passage in Exodus 30. Yeah. And it's talking about making the, um, oh, yeah, it's the making the incense. So he, he says like, uh, hey, you should make this. He gives the, um, the recipe for the incense. And he says, this is the holy anointing oil throughout generations. It shall not be used in any ordinary anointing of the body. And you shall make no other like in a composition. It's holy and it shall be holy for you. And he says, if anybody makes this and uses it for something else, it's cut off. And it is really interesting. I mean, that word is like, and why is, why was that particular oil holy and so i went to some commentaries you know one person was like well it was about being clean and you couldn't be clean if you had lice because lice makes you unclean so this is just an oil that's particularly made for keeping off lice okay that's like the lowest of the low sort of interpretation right you need Um, to have that galbanum spice with pure frankincense or the lice just don't even care (laughs) i mean and so i think there's an argument for instance just saying that like god just said hey this is going to be special right like here's like here's a Thing and we're only going to use it for that um anyways but it, it does open up a really interesting conversation about like what makes this oil holy is it just holy because like it's set apart for a particular purpose or like could we say um you know but there's no mention of like god's spirit but at the same time you have like god's the, the, the cloud of god's glory we have god's glory filling the tabernacle yeah what does it mean that god's glory is that the holy like is that the spirit of god is that a pre-incarnate Christ? It is really interesting this this how vague the Old Testament is about when God's presence shows up, about like what exactly it's what exactly that means. And uh, anyways, it's it's just interesting. What do you think? Do you I mean, do you think there's anything to the Holy Spirit coming on inanimate objects? Yeah, well, so first off, I have made several quests for different essential oil and herbologists to make this very recipe for me from Exodus 30, 34. Have you really? Yes. No one will do it. I mean, I'm anointing people at church with like grapeseed oil. And I'm like, you deserve better. I'm, I'm embarrassed. Where do you get myrrh? Like, can you just go and get myrh somewhere? By the way, so person, so it's, there's no myrrh to be found. It's two parts myrrh. And then the other parts is like oil and cinnamon. What do you, and aromatic cane. I don't even know what that is. I have a stock on Shia, galbanum, frankincense, 
that's what that's what mine says. Uh, so we... Exodus thirty twenty three. Uh, oh, I'm reading thirty four. Sorry. Oh yeah. So this is particularly. So this is thirty. So uh, this is particularly the oil that was made to anoint new priests. Mm, okay. So it's uh, yeah, sweet selling scent. It's it's myrrh and cinnamon, and some aromatic cane and some olive oil. And like, what? Where do you get myrrh? Like, I don't. I know that's oh, a legitimate question. Can you just go? I'm actually gonna look. Okay, I'm gonna real fast. I'm going to Amazon.ca and I have searched for myrrh. Hey, there we go. Mystic moments. Myrrh essential so oils. Bad. Okay. Maybe I'll go. get. I might try to get these as essential oils and make that. Okay. Anyways, well, I think I think there is something to it. Um, I don't know that I would say that the Holy Spirit would not have descended upon the tabernacle uh, if they didn't have the sacred incense. But I do think um, I do I do think that people and things m- make things special by how they use them. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, I was thinking about like uh, um, you know, like as a today, um, I was walking into work, walking up to my church and wearing my Aggie ring. And I'm probably the only person in this building and only, I mean, there's probably only a couple hundred Aggies, people who went to Texas A&M in the city that I'm at. And um, this little hunk of metal is special. It is holy. It is set apart just for certain people. Um, And I, I think that, I think that makes it special. Right. And if I just started handing it out to other people, it wouldn't be special. It, that is that is true. I do I do agree, but the, the fact that it's called holy, I think, does open just does make one pause, right? The fact that God says this oil is holy. Um, yeah, I don't know if I'm jumping up and down to the idea of like uh, of like God's spirit sanctifying. Well, um, I mean, what a holy in my mind, you know, is like set apart or unique. It has a specific purpose. And maybe that's like a really broad, generic use of the word holy. But mm-hmm. um, I think you've got a lot of issues of um, other religions um, or, or people trying to control the religion of the day. you got like even the, the high priests, you know, Aaron's sons are trying mm-hmm. to have like a strange fire, whatever that means. They're trying to do their own thing. We get to decide what's the best religion for these people. Um, you got the golden calf. you got all sorts of issues of local worship taking over the jewish worship Mm -hmm. so i think that in my mind that's probably one of the bigger elements of this passage to say this is the unique way that you will worship you don't get to pick how you get to worship uh it is but and it is interesting i do think in general that's the way the uh, things that are whole objects that are holy Uh in the old testament law are holy because like this is god's designation and not because Mm -hmm. of like um, you know, this, it does, I can't find a place where like the spirit of God came on an object. I just yeah. think, I just thought it was interesting. That is uh, interesting. Last thing. Well, I'm, hey, I got two interesting. That's that. interesting. There's some interesting stuff there so far. Uh, so last, I just wanted to just give a brief update on some, uh, on my Linton experience. Uh, it is Lent. Um, <laughs> which means we're close to Easter for us low church. I'm like, all right, Linton as in. <laughs> It's so Lent is typically a time of like self-examination. Um, and so I just wanted to share a little bit um, just from something that happened this last week. Uh, so I, I fast on. So I'm, one of the things I'm doing fasting on Wednesdays um, during Lent. I don't say that to build myself up just to kind of part of the story. So um, and so 
on Wednesday, I just had a terrible day. Like, I had a couple bad encounters, and I had just some really negative interactions. And I actually, like, I ended up, like, spending, like, four or five hours. I just couldn't get any work done because I was just so, like, bothered. Like, I don't know if you ever hit those times you're just bothered and, like, your mind is going, you just can't concentrate on anything. Yeah, just got to go take a walk or something. Right. And so, I ended, yeah, I ended up actually just walking around. And the words came to me, which is, so this is, in the, this is called the Collect for Purity. So it's an 11th century um, prayer for, in Latin. <laughs> Hold that on. Ta- an 11th century prayer from another language, from a dead language, just came to you? You need to break well, that no, down no, Okay. <laughs> Let me, so <laughs> I don't know Thomas, what that means. Thomas Cramner, who was kind of founder of the Anglican Church, he translated this into English, and it's become like one of the cornerstone prayers okay. in an Anglican okay. service. And so it, it goes, Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may more perfectly love you. And, you know, I was, and for some reason it came to me, and I was thinking about, like, how much, sometimes, like, how sometimes upsetting it is just when our desires get crossed. Like, you know, like, you have an interaction with somebody, and you're like, that didn't go well. And if you really sit and think about it, it's like, well, I have all of these desires. Like, I want people to like me, and I want people to think that I'm smart, and I want yeah. people to think I'm right and you some like I think it's a lot of times you can handle that but then sometimes you're hungry and haven't eaten all day and you're you you know you're tired already and you've had a bunch of stuff and you realize man like I desire a lot of things and if I don't get what I desire that it, it like it may it's hard um and anyway, I I, I don't. It was a really it, it was a very cleansing sort of experience for me just to kind of think about like how much our appetites and our desires dictate how we act. Hmm. Um, and I think it's just a good reminder that's part of the Lenten season is to have a time when we really kind of intentionally think about um, not letting our desires just dictate. Um, everything we do, and and also just being honest about them, like God, and that's why that prayer, like. All this, God knows all of our desires and our secrets aren't hid from him. Like God knows what we want, right? And so if we just sit there and try to hide from ourselves and from God, like the things we want, like that doesn't really help anything because God knows them. So what we do is we ask God to cleanse our desires so that we can love him better. And uh, I don't know, it was a helpful, it was a helpful reminder to me that uh, sometimes Sometimes you just need to take a look at the ugly face of your desires and what you want out of life and realize that it's not always what God wants. So I'm, I'm curious about your phrase, um, the phrase you just used, uh, cleanse your desires. What, what do you mean by that? Well, so I guess the words is, you know, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts. So I guess, I guess allowing me to be better, uh, to be not controlled. Um, so for instance, like I, I like, I mean, I like to be right. Like, I, I don't, you know, that's a desire of mine. I desire to always be right. If somebody doesn't mm. think I'm right, it's easy to be bo- really bothered by the fact that, like, I don't, like, either I was wrong or somebody thinks that I was wrong, right? Like, they've crossed a desire of mine. And that's not necessarily an evil desire, right? But but if it starts to control, like, your, if your desire to be right controls all your actions and that trumps, you know, things like desiring to love people well, then that's an added, that's a desire that you need God to cleanse, right? He, you would like for God to cleanse the thought of your hearts in that moment. So, well, I think that I think it's a really it is actually a really helpful way to think about it because you don't want necessarily you want to be right, 
and I want other people to think I'm right because I am right. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I want I don't want the desire to be right to overwhelm my desire or the desire to be thought of as right to overwhelm my desire to be actually correct. You know, like I can be, any desire can overwhelm and be unhealthy. It needs to be refined. It needs Mm. to be baptized. Baptized. You have not been baptized. No, I think, I think that's interesting. I think um, practically, so I was thinking today um, as I'm going with with a a group of friends through second, um, second Timothy, that a lot of the things that Paul does is he's like, hey, remember these people in your life and remember me as you go into challenges. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't, I think one of the things we've lost is we have individual spiritualities. And so we don't talk about, well, fasting or prayer or things that are integral to Christian faith. We don't invite people into those because they're intensely personal in our culture. Yeah. Um, which, which I don't think is super helpful. I mean, we've talked before about, um, you know, I think there are, there are two things which are not allowed to talk about in, a, in American society, at least. And that's like money and sex, right? Like you don't talk about like, I, like it would be considered extremely inappropriate to me if I was like, hey, Andrew, like, how's your bank account doing? Did you spend more this week than you made? Like, that's like, yeah. whoa, that's my business. You don't have any. But like, those are two of the most like. That's like, all the Bible felt- talks about. You would lose like a. <laughs> Like more than twenty percent of your Bible would be gone. Sure, yeah, and just um, and sometimes, like for instance, that would be a case of like my desire to be private or my desire to feel like I'm in control of those things can trump, um, you can trump maybe my desire to be godly, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which I think is uh, and so anyway, so it's a it's a great prayer. It was helpful for me, and I think again, like I think it's just a good. I mean, that's. Um, the whole point of the season of Lent is to realize that we desire a great many things and those desires are not always right or those desires sometimes trump better desires, yeah. which we should have. And uh, it's a time to kind of take an honest look in the mirror about what you want. That's great, man. I'd say that that's interesting too, man. You're winning the interesting game. Don't, don't beat yourself up. I mean, three for three. Well, that's so uh, I'm going to end while I'm ahead while I'm still an interesting person. <laughs> Well, this that's podcast terrible. is so interesting. That's terrible. Well, well are you, why don't are you ready to jump in? Let's baptize the rest of this conversation. So we're going to take a quick break, and Andrew's going to try to recover from that wonderful, wonderful joke, and we'll oh be back. Man. You've taken the plunge. So we're going to be talking about baptism. You know, as we learned, uh, I guess, two episodes ago, there is just no way in the next you know, 45 minutes or whatever we can handle all the issues around baptism. There's a lot. So we're going to handle some of them. And let's start just with uh, Andrew. Uh, how are you um, How are you baptized? Let's just talk a little bit about some of our personal experiences as far as baptism is concerned. Sure. How were you baptized? So it was kind of an interesting deal. Um, so I grew up in a Christian home, and there was a point where I was probably seven, where I was, you know, I prayed the prayer, so to speak. Um, but I said, hey, mom, dad, I, I, I believe this. They're like, great, that's great. And that, that ended the conversation until I was maybe, I think I was 18, and I said, 
I want to get baptized. And like, great, let's get baptized. But they wanted that to be something that I chose to do instead of they said, this is something you need to do. Hmm. Um, which is kind of interesting because I remember watching, I've probably watched a hundred baptisms between seven and 18 and never once that I remember was I like, Oh, I want to do that. Hmm. So it was around 18. I was still in high school about to leave for college and I was like, I want to get baptized. So, um, we were going to a small startup church at the time. We were meeting in a, in an elementary school and they didn't have any baptismal or anything like that. But for an evening, like small group that happened to have a hot tub, um, we just went there and I got, I got dunked with maybe one or two other people. Um, the, I don't remember any conversation beforehand. I'm sure there was some though, but then, um, the, the, one of the pastors, there were three guys that were kind of tag team of the pastoral responsibilities. They, um, one of the guys gave me a systematic theology book and, you know, said best wishes, you know, yada, yada, yada inside the cover and sent me out into the world. That was my baptism experience in a hot tub with maybe 15 people in East Texas. You know, my, uh, so I actually have some similar elements, which I think is interesting. Uh, when my brother and I, my brother, and I, I don't even remember how we started talking about this, but we were, we would have been like, uh, six or seven. Um, and we had both made a profession of faith when we were, you know, around when we were five. And we were talking about, um, I think somebody just been baptized and we asked our parents like, Hey, like, should we be baptized? And my, my mother gave us a list of words and she's like, when you can tell me what these words, they were like justification and sanctification. Like he's like, when you can tell wow. me what these words mean, you can get baptized. And what's interesting is we just kind of like, okay, we just kind of like, we just kind of <laughs> like set later. that aside. <laughs> but at some point, you know, about five, uh, six or six years later, we, I think we just remembered them. And so. We, you know, came up with like, hey, these are what these mean. What can we get baptized? So, uh, we, you know, like our church had the pastors and one of the couple of the elders come and talk to us. And then I was actually baptized by my father. Um, the pastor allowed our father to baptize both my brother and I uh, at mm. the same time. So at the same um, time, like a well, well, one hand like, on, at, like, on the same day. Okay. Who went first? Do you remember? My brother. He's uh, older. older brother first into the world. Okay, fine. Um. <laughs> Anyways, but it, yeah, it, it was really interesting that like with both of us, we were kind of like, we never like, oh, that's okay, interesting. And then at some point, it just kind of like clicked that like, oh, this is something I should think about. It is interesting how that works, right? It's like oil changes. Hmm. Good for them. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So let's, what are some, what are some ways, so we were talking about this a little bit off air, just some like things we've seen as far as around baptism. Um, you have anything that you want to throw out oh, that you think man. are interesting? Uh, I've got a couple. I've got some got, doozies. I've got so many great things. Um, uh, so one of the guys who was something of a mentor for me, um, I was an intern uh, while I was in seminary, and this was a, just a hero of the faith. Um, I say kind of an intern because I was just like trying to get as many lunches and hang around for as many conversations as I could. But one time he was talking about he had the honor of baptizing somebody, um, and he he said that, and I'm not, I still don't know if he was serious or not, but he said that whenever he baptized somebody, he puts them, I mean, all the way under the water. And, you know, you're like, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, or whatever you say, and then you dunk them, and you expect to come right back up. But he would hold them down and be like, you were dead. 
in your trespasses and sins. And so for like three or five or ten seconds and they're starting to struggle, that's when you pull them up. And I'm like, part of me loves that. <laughs> and part of me thinks I'm going to get one baptism in and no one will ever let me do it again. <laughs> that's funny. Um, so, hey, by the way, were you were you immersed once or three times? Uh, just one really good one, one really good, good one. time. I mean, you get it. You go deep enough, you know. One deep time or three shallow times, you know, it all it all works out volume wise. Let's do the math. Um, let's see what other weird things. Uh, there. So in our church, um, we kind of do a thing where you know, like priesthood of the believer. That kind of you know Luther's idea where, um, you know, we're here to equip the saints as as leaders of the church to do the work of the ministry, and you make a profession of faith. And just like Jesus didn't um, himself, at least in some of the Gospels, it said that Jesus himself didn't baptize, but his disciples did. Um, it's the message that the disciples carried about who Jesus was that the people who were getting baptized were agreeing with. So we would say at our church, anyone at this church, or anyone, truly anyone who's been baptized themselves, who has made a profession of faith in, in, um, in Christ, they themselves can baptize you. So if someone says, hey, this is someone who has adopted my faith, oh, great. Well, that, it's, like a, it's like a spiritual father or mother, so to speak. Well, so all that to say, and we can talk about that later. I'm sure we will. I said that's a... <laughs> uh, you're, are, you, are you biting your, your teeth right now, biting your nails? But the, uh, so sometimes it turns into a, like a super spiritual uh, like couples renewal kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, or like, you know, the whole family's doing it, so let's all just jump in and do it kind of thing. And we've had one time where uh, a guy was baptizing his girlfriend, and let me just say, there it, it was just, you know... Hey, That's a terrible idea. Whatever church allowed that. Uh, I don't think I don't think everyone knew all the relationships that were involved, but uh, there was... That's, so that's just a terrible idea. It was... Uh, what I if they break say, up? What if your ex-boyfriend... <laughs> the the hug went on for a little longer than I was comfortable with. And I'm it's comfortable just, with I mean, a lot. Just, it's just... That's, I don't, so, I, I mean, I'm all like about... I'm all about boyfriends and girlfriends, you know, dating evangelism. That's so great. I'm actually not okay with that. But when that happens, great. Go baptize that person. Show some modesty. Come on. So that's... I, I th- so so it's, yeah, it's not an have emotional you, connection with someone. Have you ever seen a uh, re- re-baptism? Have you seen more, a re-baptism? Uh, I, I don't know that I have actually seen a re-baptism. I have told probably a dozen people, we're not going to do that. I'm sorry. Hmm. Um, you know, this, is, this is on a side note. This is actually a question a, a friend of mine asked the other day. Uh, because So my, my mother, for instance, was sprinkled because they were Mennonite. And so... One of the reasons we didn't end up in a Baptist church is when they left the Mennonite church and they went to a Baptist church, they said, well, we, you can't be a member here unless you get rebaptized. Oh, that's interesting. Um, but uh, so I, I, I'm actually not a fan of rebaptizing because I think uh, you're going to hear that Andrew and I, what we call credo Baptist, that we think baptism is best um, if it's done with adults who are professing their faith or as a person that's able to profess their faith. That being said, I don't think it's an illegitimate baptism. You know, if you're baptized as a child, I don't think that anybody should feel the need to be rebaptized. Uh, but the particularly what I was at, so I was at a uh, with a friend of mine today, a barbecue that they have we're having one summer at the pool, and it doubled as a baptism. So he baptized a person in the pool, and hmm. the pastor was like, "Hey, I don't see anywhere in Scripture 
where it says that a person can't get baptized more than one time. So if anybody here wants to make, you know, a profession of their faith in Christ, just come on down, we'll baptize you. So everyone got baptized. Um, well, I saw like, a couple of people did go in and I uh, was like, there you go. And so I thought that was interesting, like in his hmm. view. I will talk about that too. Probably, Is that just an like, ongoing? Well, so if so, I've had a conversation in the last week or maybe two weeks where someone said I was baptized as an infant, but I wasn't aware of anything that's going on, and I would like to myself make a literal profession of my faith that I actually have. Mm-hmm. And we're like, okay, great, come on, get in the sure. water. Um, right. So we—that's interesting. We, yeah, we would take the opposite position that your mother saw. Where it's like you can't join unless you get baptized. We'd say join this community if you've never stood up and said I believe in Jesus and gotten dunked. Let's do it. Um, I think uh, you don't have to be able to swim to get baptized, but you do have to be able to spell swim to get baptized <laughs> in our church. So, so this is fun. So um, currently in um, so I'm currently in an Anglican church, and so I've witnessed a few infant baptisms, which mm-hmm. are typically. Uh, by making the sign of the cross with uh, holy water, but the so the tradition in the Eastern Catholic, so this would be the it'd be the Church of the East. So you saw, see this in like Iraq and um, India, is to do uh, full immersion of infants. Yes, and I was actually at a I yes. was at an Anglican church that did this that they took an infant. And did a threefold oh, no. dunking of this infant three in the fold. water. Oh, that baby and was I, not happy. I mean, I was just—I would have loved to have been oh, in that mother's head. No, and that's like a newborn baby. That's like on the seventh day. I mean, I think the baby was probably like a couple weeks old. Oh, um, my actually, though, I actually thought it was kind of interesting because <laughs> I, bet, I bet it was interesting. I bet you had so nightmares. Here's, here's why. So obviously, the baby started to cry. Right, the baby's yeah. underwater. Is drowning. Sure. Yes, of course the baby. Of course, the baby started to cry. And I thought that the priest, you know, the priest had little kids. He was great, you know, um, the very caring sort of person. Um, so he's comforting this, like, little child as he's... And I was thinking, it's a, it is actually an interesting picture of the kingdom. That, like, we come into the kingdom as infants kicking and screaming, even though it's what's good for us. I actually think it's an interesting... You know, it's like, it's supposed to picture, like, the washing of regeneration... And there's a certain extent that, like, we come into regeneration kicking and screaming and crying. And I think, uh, I don't know, I thought it was actually kind of an interesting, I mean, I don't necessarily know. It, I mean, well, I will say it is a powerful image. It, it is a, it was a good image. If, you know, if you're going to baptize infants, I'm all for dunk, I mean, dunk those infants in water. A bunch of adults standing around an, an adult plunging a baby underwater multiple times is a powerful image. Everyone said everyone is looking as peaceful as I'll get out. That is and the child intense. Is, that is intense. Whatever uh, else it is, it is intense. It is intense. Uh okay. So we got a def- <laughs> bunch of different ways that we can approach this. So let's just start at t- uh, by talking about the summary Andrew. What's your summary about what you think baptism? If someone says why should I get oh, baptized? Man. Uh, so, uh, so there's a, there is a ton here. Um, there, and yeah, there's, so there's, there's two things. I think, um, maybe three things I'd like to just throw you four way. things, which he are important that to us. Four things the Lord hates. Um, so like baptism basically means like if you were to give it a gloss, plunging, dipping, washing, um, maybe, yeah, plunging is kind of 
maybe the the one overarching, but in in exclusively in the Bible, it has ceremonial elements to it. So like ceremonial ritual cleansings or the Bible and early Jewish literature. Yeah, the Bible and early Jewish literature. So um, you've got the Greek word for baptism, which could be dipping, washing, whatever. But in the Bible, Old Testament, early Jewish literature, the New Testament, it is 100%. There is a ceremonial relationship with God, purification rite, initiatory um, elements to it. So that's that's the first thing. So um, it is a distinctively religious word in the Bible. Um, but then the other thing is it's a, um, oh, what is it called? It's a transliteration. So kind of like mm. Messiah, there's not a really good one-to-one or Abba or uh, synagogue. There's not a good one-to-one in English. And so baptize is transliteration from the Greek baptizo. Um, mm-hmm. or however you want to pronounce that, uh, because it seemed like we couldn't just say plunge, and so we used the word baptizo or baptized. I mean, basically we say the Greek word um, to to say go underwater in a variety of senses, but specifically in our context, um, bap- like to be a ritual. So that's the other thing. It's it's not an English word. Um, but so you're, third, not, you're not going to just run into it in your normal oh, everyday. Yeah. yeah. Um so when you're talking specifically like a biblical language when you say bat- baptize someone you're saying that you have a ceremonial ritual um purification initiatory extraordinary experience kind of background to that thing. But mm-hmm. thirdly um so I don't know if if this is uh, healthy of me or not but I've we just finished watching Arrested Development and I don't know if you've have you ever seen Arrested Development? I never really watched it, no. So it's, I mean, totally vulgar. I'll just say that. Like, it is, there's no way it's PG-13 in real life. Like, if 13-year-olds can watch this and understand this, and this is a healthy world, we are unhealthy. Let me just say that <laughs> right off. If you were a child listening to this, just turn off this podcast and unsubscribe. Shame on you. But um, one of the things that they are awesome with it, this, this, uh, with with Arrested Development, this TV show, is they will say something like, there's always money in the banana stand. And then they'll say later, there's always money in the banana stand. And they'll say it like 10 times in the, one of the first shows. Mm-hmm. And then it, it it basically, this phrase, there's always money in the banana stand, takes off with a meaning of its own. And so it's no longer about money like being produced by the banana stand. It's money inside the banana stand. Or it's a metaphor. Or it's a... Um, double entendre, or it's a triple entendre, or it's a quadruple entendre. And like literally 80 episodes later, someone says there's money in the banana stand, and people have like four or five different images in their mind, all of them hilarious. And so you can just be laughing, even if you don't know what it originally was talking about, it has mm-hmm. a meaning, it's taken a meaning of its own, and probably six or seven meanings. Mm-hmm. And so with, with baptism, you see plunge, you've been dipped you've been soaked and this word comes up and and i think the bible uses this phrase and it takes different elements um from like from noah being pulled from from death by water you take creation where well anything you do with water you're going to have a whole lot of different images about what water does right water is a pretty you know we're not talking you know 
a silic acid, you know, out, you know, it's like, it's, you know, it's not hydrochloric acid here, you know, they're like, yeah. oh, there's one thing, like, it's a, it's always going to be a pretty multivalent sort of well, conception. But I think when you have the beginning of the Bible talking about water and then land being formed and pulled out of the water, and then you've got this, this story of the deluge where the creation order is being reversed, but then out of the water, Noah is pulled, then you've got Moses walking through the water, leading the Israelites, mm-hmm. um, and they were saved through water. And then you've got all these these water metaphors, these plunges, these um, these initiatory rites that involve water. Um, yeah, things that were started involving water. Yeah, so there's a ton of background to this, and there's a ton of rich meaning that goes into the concept hmm. of being baptized in a ceremonial sense today. That that can be totally lost, but it's super rich. It's overwhelmingly rich. Yeah, I think that that's really uh, that is really interesting. And actually, so I've been reading a lot the last two days in preparation for this of different early documents we have that were explaining baptism, mm-hmm. and all of them pick up on the same thing. Just like uh, noticing how many different sorts of ways water is used in the bible and the different sort of images it has sure um yeah that's really interesting i'd like to talk for a second about acts about the baptism of john have you looked oh, at this yeah, yeah. i well, think so this is fascinating i think it's super po- important because there are different elements of baptism yes so like there's di- like you can be baptized into or for different things right so if you just had to got baptized my like in our culture it's like oh you're a christian but back in the you know Second Temple Judaism in Jesus' day, there are all sorts of people baptizing for all sorts of different things, right? Uh, and so this this shows up all the way in, in Acts one, but a couple different places it we see this statement of, of baptism of John, and it's most it's probably most pronounced in Ephesus in Acts nineteen, mm-hmm. and so Paul, uh, Paulus it's a, and every time it, when it says that not every time most time it says the baptism of John for repentance. Yeah, and so Apollos is in Corinth, and Paul, so Paul passed through, and he goes to Ephesus, and he sees some disciples, and he says to them, "Hey, do you have the Holy Spirit?" And they say, "Uh, what are you talking about?" No, <laughs> and he said, "Well, how were you baptized?" They said, "Well, they were baptized with John's baptism," and Paul says, "John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come. That's Jesus." On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and the Holy Spirit came on them. This is, I, th- I just think it's fascinating. Uh, again, highlighting, first of all, that there's a, there is a really uh, strong emphasis on baptism and the reception of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which we've talked about is foundational for understanding of like the mysteries of the church, church practices that we consider to be mysteries and be really important. Uh, but it is interesting that, right, that like, that there are the elements of this is not just repentance, right? That that if this is not the baptism is not just about repentance. That was John's baptism. The baptism of yeah. Jesus is also about reception of the Holy Spirit. Which I think is really interesting. Yeah. Well, I think you look at. Um, so I do think there is a little buffer in Acts nineteen where it's when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of Lord Jesus. And I'm looking at the the Net Bible's translation. And then in 196, it says, and when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they began to speak right. in tongues and prophesy. That's correct, yes. Um, so I, I think the, but the key element is 
what whatever is what does it mean to be in a baptism in Jesus? And uh, I was looking, I was actually looking this up because the word um, "in," which in Greek is of course pronounced "in,", in. <laughs> um, it 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 basically "bdag," um, one of the a pretty popular thing. Basically, it says um, to be an involvement in Christ's death and its implications is how they mm-hmm. kind of categorize that. If to be into Jesus or baptized in right. Jesus, I I don't remember if you said this. Did we mention the fact that bap- that baptize has a kind of a a base meaning of like association with. Did we talk about that? Well, if you're plunged into, or if right. you're, um, uh, I mean, it's, I mean, put into is there's going to be an association with. Right. And so I, I, so with what you're saying right there, right. That like what you're being, what you're associating yourself with is going to be it's significant, right. That this is specifically like an association with the life and work of Jesus and not just with like the repentance that John was sure. preaching, right? Sure. Well, yeah. I th- so I think you look at um, um, Paul talks about a lot like baptized into his death, um, mm-hmm. and then you've got the idea of Jesus being descending to the lower parts of the earth. I think that means mm, to, right. into the yeah. grave and then coming out of the grave. And so you're identifying, you're basically repeating the experience that Jesus had. Even though I wasn't there, I'm identifying with, hey, I was, um, I identify with Christ and his death and resurrection and -hmm. all the implications of that um, God applies um, to myself. Paul makes that, Paul draws this link, which you're talking about here in Romans 6, um, when he says, you know, shall we continue in sin? And he says, no. Do you not know that all who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, we've identified ourselves in mm-hmm. through baptism into yeah. Christ Jesus, were identified in Christ's death. Therefore, just so you've been buried in him by baptism into death, just as Christ was raised from the dead with the glory of the Father, so we should walk in newness of life. And this is the typical baptism form, formula, right? Buried with him in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in newness of life. Sure. Well, and so... so- Keep, no, keep going, keep going. I've well, got, so I just so it, uh, it, it there's a couple things swirling around there, right? That all of this is an identification with the life and work of Jesus, and all of the forms of the ritual are a way of kind of acting out what we're identifying with, which I think is is, is very helpful to think through uh, what the purpose of it is. Yeah, and we talked about um, the importance of like ceremonies that are repeated for people who aren't actually there. So mm-hmm. like the Passover, um, Moses tells the people, when your kids ask you, why are we celebrating the Passover? You say, um, when we were slaves in Egypt, God rescued us, um, and we celebrated the Passover mm-hmm. because God told us to, and we just remember that forever. But they, the idea is they do that in like forever. Every, like this year, Jews mm-hmm. will celebrate the Passover, and the fathers will tell the children, let me tell you why we're doing this because we were rescued from Egypt and we identify with what what historically happened thousands of years ago. And um that's super powerful I think for me and for mm-hmm. you to say we have a memory a tactile thing we can look at um right. to look back on. But another thing um I don't want to move on too Can, can I give, can I give two thoughts on that first before we yeah. move on? No, okay. I think that's great. So there's two things in there I think that's really important. One is this communal the communal aspect of it. So we I'm going oh, to advocate sure. for one baptism. A I think shared. your baptism is it's supposed to be an initiatory right. 
Mm-hmm. But the re-remembrance of that comes. So just like when you do a wedding, part of what a wedding should be for is a reminder of those who are at the wedding or yeah. married of what they've committed to. Yeah. When that part of baptizing is that from then on, when you, when your church performs a baptize, you participate in that baptism as the church. And so it's a reminder for you of your baptism because you are now participating in the future baptism. I think is interest, uh, it's an important uh, the other thing with that is I think that I'm going to come back to this is Luther has this, this, I think this fantastic statement that the purpose of baptism is to be an anchor for the soul. So mm-hmm. that if you're ever, if you hit a time of doubt that you can look back and like, I don't know if I was really saved, that you can look back at a moment and say, there was a moment I can kind of look. It's not that That's that moment saves you, but at least gives you something to kind of focus on. Um, during times of doubt as an anchor. I think that's, and we're going to come back to that too, but just to kind of introduce those concepts. Well, I, th- I think you could do a similar thing with like weddings. Um, I don't know. Did we ever love each other? And you're like, no, we went through the whole ordeal of getting mm-hmm. married and everyone rode around us and said, we can do this. Um, that is a tactile memory of what was true at least one time in the past. Um, well, one thing that's kind of similar to that is um, in 1 Corinthians 12. Okay, um, yeah. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, um, it says, In one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether mm-hmm. Jews or Greeks um, or slave or free. We were all made to drink of the one spirit, which is kind of interesting. Now we're talking about like fluid again still, but drinking of the one spirit, the Holy Spirit. Um, for in fact, the body is not a single member, but many. Mm. Then it goes to if the foot says I'm I'm not a hand I'm not part of the body it's not I mean it's we're all we all need each other basically but baptism we all have this shared common experience but we're like plunged into one community so like when you <clears> become <throat> a Christian like it or not you've got a new family <laughs> and you didn't pick these people and they didn't pick you God picked you um, God elected you to be saved but uh, it's it's certainly an argument for unity that. I don't know that I had considered until looking into this just recently. Well, hey, it turns out it's, it's interesting how many of these practices are arguments for unity, both in the practice themselves and also an argument from the fact that we're all supposed to do these practices, right? It's supposed to give people a visible kind of yeah. sign of our unity. Um, I'm going to talk for just a minute about some things that I like from early, from early baptism traditions and how I wish on my hope that we can bring them back okay yeah so first off off exorcism oh, so i think this is really interesting um <laughs> first early off. early baptisms uh involved an exorcism now they were not necessarily in the way that you were thinking about it <laughs> but it but it is specifically a renouncing of the devil and a declaration by the church um to that of like of casting off of the power of Satan. Hmm. I think that's, I think that's a really, so this is actually, some of this has uh, survived in the, in the Orthodox baptism. Um, you know, the, so this is actually a, the prayer that the Orthodox priest will pray at the start of a baptism. Oh is Lord. It, put, that's today. This is like today. This is, this is now. The, wow. And this is, this is a remnant from this old practice. We have this back uh, as far as the third century. The Lord puts you under the ban. O devil. He who came into the world and made his abode with men that he might overthrow your tyranny and deliver men. And then it goes on and basically says, so it's like, 
and so I think that that idea is really interesting. And actually, they would ask people before they went to baptize them, do you renounce the devil? And I actually think that that's a really, I think that's a fast, now some of that was connected with the fact that a lot of people were coming out of idol worship and the conviction of the church was idol worship was a form of worshiping evil powers. Hmm. But I do think that, I mean, I don't necessarily, I'm not convinced that narcissism is any less worshiping of evil powers than, you know, worshiping oh, sure. all, right? And so I actually think that this is an interesting aspect that I wish we would incorporate into our services like this idea of specifically calling people to renounce the work, uh, to renounce the world, the flesh, and the devil. Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, well, so I actually just pulled up the uh, the Orthodox uh, baptism service PDF, mm-hmm. and there's a first exorcism, a second exorcism, a oh, third yeah. exorcism, and a fourth prayer. <laughs> All right. That isn't if the the first or second didn't take the third will certainly will and let's move on to praying. I, I think <laughs> I think it's powerful um, being like let's ground this in the cosmic um, battle that that yeah. we are engaged in. That's that's super intense. Well, and so all of and this is interesting. All of the ritual around baptism has been about changing teams. You mm-hmm. are change. You are joining a new team, which means a renouncing of your old team. Which sure. I think is is an interesting way of viewing it. So actually, the way that, that the ancient, the best we understand, is so that uh, I've actually been in an ancient a fourth century baptismal, um, and where you basically, uh, it was below ground, like you walked down into it. Mm-hmm. And so actually what you would do is they would say, like, you know, do you renounce, the, they would pray over you, and they'd say, do you renounce the devil? And you would actually disrobe, you would oh take off your clothes, and then you would you would say, like, I, like, like, I renounce Satan. And then you go down into the baptism and they would baptize you and they would give you a white robe and then you would come out and then all of the members of the church would be over on the side and they would be praying and they'd be, they'd be praying and fasting for you. And then basically you would come out and you would celebrate the Eucharist and have a big meal as like accepting you into their family. Hmm. Uh, and there's a couple aspects I think that was great. First of all, by the way, it's actually a really strong argument that the fact that, that the early church had uh, female deacons. That's mm-hmm. just an interesting thing, um, because they needed people. You know, it, you know, if you're if you're going to baptize naked people, turns out you had leaders of both males and females. Hey, there's, yeah. there's something for us to think. We're going to need a, a female team. <laughs> <laughs> something for us to think about. So, but yeah, so a couple of things about that that I think are are great. I wish we would regather. One is just that idea of renounce of changing teams. These visible signs of changing teams. Um, two is. Uh, you would do this after a period of like sometimes up to three years of instruction. Hmm. And so there's a really tight connection, actually, there's been in between baptism and instruction. You didn't just say, hey, I'm going to be baptized. They're like, okay, come to our two Saturday classes. They There's actually went through a really intense period of instruction. And so this is why I think Luther's statement, Luther's statement is helpful. If you don't instruct people before you baptize them, then ultimately, if you tell people to look at their baptism as an anchor for their soul, you're asking them to put their faith in a practice and not in a person. But if you instruct mm. them and you say, and you lay, you know, and you've laid out for them the gospel and you've helped them understand, and they say, I renounce Satan and I accept this, then it, there's a really tangible declaration and a knowledge of what you're accepting that I think makes it a much more helpful practice. So I would, I would really like for us to re, can connect the 
practice of baptism with the with the instruction, the initial instruction in the faith. Um, or maybe it, confirmation. Like, do you actually believe this? Well, and so this is actually interesting. So in the Orthodox Church, they you actually do, you confirm right after you're baptized. Hmm. In the Catholic Church, you confirm later. And it's really just a fact that if you, the norm in Catholic teaching is adult baptism, but the practice is infant baptism. If you actually look at the textbooks and say the norm is adult baptism, and there's a lot of reasons for that, but this is one of the, but I, I think that we need to mirror. And so I think to think if you're going to get baptized and your church doesn't really have a lot of instruction, I think that's something you might should take the initiative yourself to do some instruction. That's interesting. Before. Um, anyway, but I, I just, I, you know, I just love that image of like the church praying and like receiving you like you're one of us now. Sure. Oh, yeah. Well, I was listening to a podcast um, that was talking about a, basically book reviews for um, uh, different nerdy Christian things. Um, but uh, one of the one of the talkers was saying that there was a um, maybe second century church um, that was pretty influential, um, but they were to only have women baptize. So the women would baptize people exclusively, and it was like welping, welcoming spiritual newborns into the community. Hmm. So women have the privilege of giving birth. Women have the privilege of giving spiritual birth was kind of the metaphor there. And I was like, wow, that is – I don't know if I agree or disagree or what, but again, it's kind of like infant baptism. That is a powerful image. Right. Have you the, heard of that? Uh, I'm, you know, I'm not aware of that. I, I might have to look it up. Maybe I'll report it. <laughs> it's going to haunt you. You're not going to bed yeah. tonight. Uh, I probably won't anyways. <laughs> um, here's here's a second thing that I think is really interesting. Um, the idea, I was thinking about today, the idea of commitment. So hmm. a lot of times we talk about baptism in terms of commitment, but we only talk about it in terms of the what that person is committing. Like, I'm committing to Christ. But there's actually a flip side of that in that, the church is committing to you when they baptize oh, yeah. you. Oh, yeah. And I don't think I've ever really heard that talked about, but in some sense, the church, like that church is committing to you. And so I think that they're, that church needs to take that strongly mm-hmm. that about it, that if you have people that have wandered after their baptism, that you have a responsibility to them because you baptize them. Yeah. But, but also I think it's, it speaks to why you should, just as you should not be quick in the laying on of hands, we shouldn't be quick in the baptizing because that's like our commitment to that person for their spiritual instruction. And I, I think that I think that's an interesting aspect of baptizing that there is a commitment. It is you are joining a family, you're joining a new family, and so there's yeah. a commitment both ways uh, that's going on there. Well, so like I won't marry a couple if I think that their relationship is toxic or is unhealthy or. Mm-hmm. If for a number of reasons, um, I wouldn't marry a couple. Um, they're, I mean, they're pretty extreme, and it's very rare that a couple wouldn't meet these. But I, I do say I'm not just going to marry anybody who walks up, and I'm not going to baptize anybody who walks up. But when, when you marry someone, you have an. I feel like I don't. No one has ever said this, but I have an obligation to help to to you know keep up with them. To make mm-hmm. sure that they're alive, make sure that they're doing okay, um, make sure that they're grounded. If there's anything I can do to encourage them to thrive as a couple, I want to do that. But I think you're exactly right. When I make a profession of faith and I do it ceremonially through baptism, then it's not in isolation. Um, mm-hmm. I've, I've got people around me, and it's. I think in marriage, when you say, does, I mean, we used to say, 
Is does anyone here gathered have a reason why these two should not mm. be wed in the holy matrimony? I think it's it's the same kind of deal. Um, if someone's a charlatan, um, it's totally appropriate to say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! You just you know be- said you believe in the flying spaghetti monster. What are you doing here? You know what's going on?" Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, I think we have an obligation to to know the people who are getting baptized mm-hmm. and to come around them. Right. So that le- that leads me to my next question, Andrew. And Uh-oh. how, so I, I think in our circles, in the kind of the, what's called the, you know, credo Baptist circles, we view, it is typically baptism is viewed as just a past focused declaration, right? Like I have put my trust in Jesus. Now I'm doing this event now to kind of declare something about the past, right? It's, yeah. very, it's, it's a past focus. We talked about the, the, uh, when we talked about the Eucharist about maybe pulling some of that focus just from being past focused, but also being present and future focused. So there's a couple, I mean, there are different views around baptism, right? So I was really looking through the four views on baptism book. Um, if you want a primer, by the way, go to, go to Google uh, books and search four views on baptism. Um, so, I mean, so there, I mean, so there's the, the, in Protestant circles, you know, there's, Typically, people that would say that baptism is just is a necessary thing for salvation. Uh, this would be like Church of Christ, for instance. You have to be baptized in order to be saved. Lutheran is kind of similar. Um, a lot of people that baptize infants would say it's kind of a necessary thing for salvation. You have the Reformed churches, which don't think it's necessary for salvation, but it's a symbol of your covenant community. Yeah. And then you have, and then, then you would have people that say they're like, well, no, this is just a declaration of your past belief. So if, if you're in that camp, Andrew, like, do you think, what do you think happens in the moment of baptism? If you don't think you are saved in the moment of baptism, do you think like, does anything happen? So, and why in the New Testament do, is baptism connected in that moment to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? So can a person have put their trust in Jesus, but they don't aren't indwelt until like what? Do, I mean, what do you think? There's a couple of issues there, but what do you think happens in the moment of baptism? Yeah. So the way I look at um, the early church, I see you'll be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So again, the Holy Spirit is a person of the Trinity, mm-hmm. just like Jesus is a person of the Trinity. And so where Paul talks about, I'm baptized into Jesus Christ. I can be baptized into the Holy Spirit. In fact, we're called to be baptized in Matthew 28. Um, but, you know, go all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Um, so identifying with all three, but um, you see that that John had a baptism of repentance, a baptism with water, but Jesus has a baptism with water, uh, with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Um, so like in, in Mark, it says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, but then in Luke, he says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Right. And then um, in Matthew, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so I think um, that's talking specifically of the day of Pentecost, where okay. you've got them gathered in the, the, you know, the, the, the early church fathers, or the early church leaders, who are gathered around saying, what are we going to do? Jesus, we've seen him, but now what? He said to wait in Jerusalem, we're waiting okay, what happens? And then all of a sudden, tongues of fire show up, and they're full of the Holy Spirit, and the sign of the Holy Spirit receiving different, I mean, very different people, specifically not just Jews, the Gentiles, is the um, is 
tongues of fire. And so I think that's a unique, specific thing. But I think um, there's a connection with a profession of faith and identification with the message and the act of Christ and mm-hmm. then the indwelling, indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so in the, in the ancient world, you profess something. We're not all catacombed in isolation. We're all hanging out. We're all coming to the same water holes. We don't have indoor plumbing. Everyone lives around and spends time around sources of water where people are getting baptized. And so that that's kind of how I would I would take it. It's if I believe something, this is a life-changing thing, I'm going to stand up and tell people. And that is synonymous with the time that the Holy Spirit comes to indwell me. The Holy Spirit isn't waiting on me to get baptized and then right. like like years later, like when I was 7, I think I had the Holy Spirit in me. Mm-hmm. When I was 18, I finally was obedient to the, right. the command of scripture. I, I, I think there's, it's important, I think, to think about this, just to realize that our church practice, I do think, morphs as Christianity is in different situations. Oh, so yeah. So what we have in Acts is situations where you have uh, Jews, which are waiting for the Messiah. You have Jews, which have been, which have bought into John, that mm-hmm. the Messiah is coming, and they, and then, and, and you have, and then you have Gentiles, right? You have these different, and all of these people are kind of in in a situation where, like, they're they're converting as adults. Um, a lot of them have kind of the the, the religious background they need uh, to be baptized. Like, and so the basically conversion and then baptizing is collapsed. You know, I think into one event. Sure. Because they're happening at the same time, mm-hmm. not because they are necessarily uh, one event. I think you step have one, step two, step three. Yeah, now all of a sudden when you get to, um, when you get later, now you have in the church, people like, what do you do with people that grew up in the church and need to make a profession? What do you do with people who were coming out of pagan backgrounds and want to make a profession? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you, 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 so that's why, like, well, let's catechize them. Let's teach them first. Uh, a lot of our baptism practices now are coming out of communities where it was just kind of natural that because you were born into the Roman Empire or the Byzantine Empire or Protestant New England, oh, that you were Christian. part of the church, right? So yeah. you baptize the kid in the church because they live. I live in Boston in 1650. Like, of course I'm a priest. You know, and so a lot of times I think our our practices do reflect the situation. And so I, I think that um, it is important to know, like I think we're in a place we're kind of back to that situation where lots of people are coming out of uh are surrounded by pagan ways of thinking even if you grow up in the church you were inundated with pagan ways of thinking and so i think Mm -hmm. that has to change uh i just wanted to mention that but but also i so you and i talked about some analogies earlier and i and i mentioned that uh so for instance when you when you graduate um you have you you get a diploma right and that diploma both indicates that you graduate and actually makes it real that you graduated, right? Sure. Um, whereas um, something else like a birthday party just indicates something that's already happened, right? Like you, like you've had your birthday. This day has come, and then we're gonna have a party that just indi- it's just indicating what's already happened, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, trying to figure out, I think most people in our tradition thinks of baptism as a birthday party. Hey, this happened, and I'm just making it known. We're going to celebrate it. Mm-hmm. And I don't, because I believe a person is indwelt with the Spirit when they accept Christ. That I have a hard time saying that I, that 
the Holy Spirit is indwelling a person when they believe, but I don't know if it's just, I feel like it's also more significant than just, hey, we're just going to celebrate this profession that's yeah. already. So yeah. the best, the best analogy I could come up with was kind of like, was this analogy of joining a new team, maybe because it's free agent season and baseball <laughs> and football. They're like, at some point, you know, a person makes an agreement, but then, you know, and they might sign a contract and that's kind of like sealed the deal. But at some point they fly out to the new team and they put on a new jersey and they're like, I'm part of this team now. Mm-hmm. And that while while the deal might have been done before, that there's something really significant and ontologically changing about the day that they like show up and have their press conference and put on the new jersey and say, yeah. I'm part of this team now. Right. And I think that that would be helpful for traditions that want to see baptism is based on something that's happened in the past and not currently to still say this is a really significant thing that's going on right like you're joining a new Mm -hmm. team and there's a lot of significance to this i like that i I might push a little further so like you can have a legitimate marriage um in our culture where you don't get a ring and a legitimate marriage where you don't change your name so mm-hmm. like a, a wife doesn't change her name. I, that's that's totally legitimate. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily wrong. But I think if a husband gives a wife a ring and she says, nah, no, thank you. Um, I, I don't think that means that the, the relationship is is not legitimate. Or I don't think that if, if she rejects his name or says, I'm not taking that name for whatever reason, I don't think it's necessarily wrong. I think um, especially if the husband wants the wife to have the name and wants that wife to have this ring, the the symbol of their new relationship, I think there there is a tangible effect. Uh, there is a, a, a the relationship is not where it could be. There mm-hmm. a strain has been introduced. And so if if someone says, I've given you this symbol, if God were to say I've given you a symbol of our relationship and you just say, nah, I don't want to do that. Um that that will affect your relationship with God. And if that doesn't mean mm-hmm. you don't have a relationship with God, but I think um, you've chosen not to be obedient to what God has told you to do. And so mm-hmm. maybe like with the pure, the, the nard or whatever it was called, the, 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 the anointing oils, if you say, I'm going to worship God how I want to worship God, God's like, what, what are you doing? It's not that I don't have a relationship with you or a covenant with you, but stop it. Why? Right. Why? why would you just... You know, just like Adam say, I'm going to do what I want to do. Forget you. Um, right. When we obey God, we grow closer to God. And I think for clear things like, hey, you should go teach them everything I've commanded you and baptize them. That's for everybody. We should all do this. If someone says, I'm not going to do that, you're not going to be as healthy. You're not going to have as close relationship with God as you would want if you just reject God. And you will be closer to God than otherwise if you do obey God. So, I mean, you don't have to have, I think, sacred water for that to happen. But I I do for it it not to be significant, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I mean, I I would say I'm uncomfortable saying that um, in the ceremony of baptism, the Holy Spirit is moved by the rite that I perform or that someone has performed for them. You know, like that makes me uncomfortable. I don't I don't necessarily see that in Scripture. Yeah, and you know, I don't think we said it specifically, but the reason the reason that I'm a credo Baptist is if you look at all I mean, you even I can point out these passages in Catholic and Orthodox and Anglican, and they all say baptism is a pointing to a person's belief and their 
um, and their and their inclusion in the church. And so I just say if you're if if it's supposed to point to their inclusion in the church, and a person is included in the church based on faith in Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, why are you baptizing somebody if they haven't put their faith? And I know that people I know you know the people get around this by saying, well, you're baptizing based on the faith of the godparents, or you're baptizing based upon a pledge that you hope that they do. I just don't think that's, I just don't think that's what the, it's for. And I know that there are fair arguments for infant baptism. And that's why I, I would not require a rebaptism. But I, I think the, the image is just most powerful if it's your, if it's signifying your inclusion based upon your faith and the the Holy Spirit. Sure. Sure. Let's, let's end this up with a couple, a couple of thoughts, Andrew. So let's go with, um, if you haven't been baptized, person that hasn't baptized, church, what would you say to these different, just as far as like, if you're, you know, thoughts to those different groups. So if, if someone, if someone's listening and they haven't been baptized, what would well, you be your thoughts to them? I would say, um, well, I mean, are you a Christian? I mean, have you trusted what Christ has done for you? Um, why, why wouldn't you, if he's asked you to do this, just do it. Mm-hmm. Um, if God's asked you to do it, just do it. Why? Why would you not do it? Um, and I think, yeah, just do it. Why? Why? Why would we not do it today? I would say that, and I would just say that I think it's best if you pair this with some instruction. Mm-hmm. So if you don't feel like you understand the faith well, um, do something. Go find an elder or somebody and do do a little Bible study. Do some and uh, and feel like you understand your what you're ascending to and then uh commit right like don't uh commit to going commit to the church um by identifying with her yeah uh someone's already been baptized any thoughts for them i probably most of our uh listeners have been baptized do you have any thoughts for them uh, for people who have been baptized yeah for have been baptized um if you have been baptized i would say um Go to baptisms, and it'll be healthy for your relationship mm-hmm. with Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's like if you're married, go to a wedding and remember your vows. Um, think about these vows, and think about how I mean, have an ownership to this member, new member of your family. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think uh, a lot of people line up to meet the pastor at the end of the of a service. I'd say line up to meet the person who get, got baptized and say, "Hey, is anyone important in your life?" Like take make take ownership to say I may not disciple this person, but I do have an obligation to make sure that somebody is right. And so, as a member of this family, someone has to teach you how to walk and then how to run in your faith. Yeah, totally agree. If you were baptized, you signed up to be part of a family. So when you see other people join your family, those are infants that need care. Yeah, and we have a responsibility for that. Uh, churches, any thoughts if someone's here listening as a pastor or an elder or something, any thoughts for churches? Oh man, uh, you should do baptisms. <laughs> if, uh, so healthy things grow. That's a, that's a, a, a pretty standard thing we see in nature and that's not a verse, but I think if, if you don't have any baptisms, um, that's an indication that we need to say, uh, what, what's going on? What what what's going on with our body that we're not growing, we're not multiplying? Um, but at the same time, if you have too many babies in a room, babies make big messes, and spiritual babies make big 
messes too that are not any less significant or maybe mm-hmm. any less headaches. And so I would say um, you have to, um, if you have a ton of people getting baptized, that's great. Um, but you have a ton of issues that you have a new issues you need to think through. And that's the same thing. I mean, baptisms are really a healthy way to say, um, what's this unique challenge that we have as a church? Yeah. I mean, I would say the same thing. I would, I would say, um, I would really encourage pastors just like we did for our Eucharist discussion to really think about how we can maximize the symbology in the practice. So I would really encourage you to look at ways the church has baptized in the past. So think about doing things like asking them to renounce Satan, uh, having a, a meal of acceptance in the church afterwards. I sure. love that they used to only baptize on Easter. I think it was great. It's, it was, yeah. And so I would encourage you to think about incorporating these things. But most of all, and I, I think I'm going to belabor this point. We do have a crisis, I think, of people leaving the church. We talk about when they go to college. And I wish that we would incorporate baptism and teaching or in catechesis into our youth groups so that we're using our youth groups as an intentional time of catechesis and kind of ending it with baptizing and sending people out. Like you're like, you've made this commitment and that way you're sending people into the world as adults from a position of strength and a position of commitment instead of just kind of like sliding them out to go party. Yeah. I would say one thing that I really liked um, at a church I was a part of in Dallas for, for a brief time is baptisms were a part of their worship. And every time someone got baptism, it was, or baptized, it wasn't a thing that, that, that happened after. It wasn't a thing that happened somewhere else. Um, we have worship in song, worship in word, and worship in communion, and worship in baptism. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that they gave people a platform in front of hundreds, if not thousands, to say, this is my testimony, this is who I was before Jesus, let me tell you how my interaction with Jesus changed that, um, I want to celebrate that and be baptized today. And that was a key part of how the church worshipped, um, and it was it was raw and it was superhuman and it was super powerful. And I would say that's something that I wish we did more in my church um, today. So I'd say if that's that's an un, that's a missed opportunity for the for the quote unquote low church, the non liturgical church, to 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 take advantage of that maybe the high church can't if you can't do four exorcisms you can at least do do two two exorcisms a fair number you've got two exorcisms come on come on you could do that anybody can do that uh well if you if if you can't exercise a demon you're not going to the gym enough yeah are you even trying come on don't let those demons get healthier than you um well that's that's all i've got mr kissel um that's all i've got um well i think that that wraps it up that's a wrap. I've got I've got some papers to write. I've got some things to think about. I've got some things to edit. Go check out I'm those, just going, those women, those baptizing go, women. Figure that out. I'm uh, getting enough well, clues. You know what? The, the, the women can baptize who they want to. Never, never stand in their way, Andrew. I'm I sure won't. That. I know better than that. Um, if uh, if you have questions, comments, or thoughts, um, hit us up on Facebook. Um, you can email us at backrowtheologians at gmail.com. But we hope this has been challenging and helpful um, as you think through just the super rich um, metaphor and ceremony and experience and initiation that baptism is. We hope also that you'll join us again in two weeks. But until then, this has been Yates. And Ian. Thanks again, as always, for joining us on the back row. Godspeed. Godspeed.
Thanks for listening. Any views expressed on the podcast do not necessarily represent all of Christendom, so we encourage you to read and study for yourself and form your own thoughts. Special thanks to our production engineer, Johan Benjamin. The music was composed by Simon Yao. If you enjoy the show, leave us a review on iTunes. And we hope you'll join us again next time for another episode of The Back Row Theologians. Um, but until then, uh, this has been Yates. And Andrew. And oh, man. Let's, let's do that again. <laughs> say my uh, name, say my name. Until then, this has been Yates. And Ian. All right. <clears throat> <laughs>